Well, uh, I want to thank you guys. Uh, it's good to be back up front, and it's been kind of funny since you know I'm I'm the speaker who is also part of the group. Um, and apparently, when I did this a couple of years ago, it was that oh, a speaker sits in the small group. We don't know what to do with that. And oddly <laughs> enough, the small group still didn't know what to do with me, but that's okay. But um, we've just been having a great time, and I really appreciate being a part of this. And it, it really is that experience of it's amazing to get here this early and have all you guys actually awake and doing stuff. So that that's. That's wonderful. Um, one of the things that we've been doing in, in our services on Sunday mornings is having the, the candle up front. Um, so you may know that. And I asked to have the candle up front so that I could light it and we could pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be part of our experience this morning. So um, we're going to do that. Sweet. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we love you, we appreciate you, and right now we especially need you to help us focus on who Jesus is and uh, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds with this parable, that you would bless what I prepared and use it to change our hearts and lives. God, we need you and we care about what you care about. So be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank Scott, although he, is Scott here? No? What a surprise? No. Um, he did a great job with his parable last week, but he also did a great job with the introduction, kind of setting the context about the whole vineyard and the sons and everything. And that's a little more important for us this morning because our parable is the very next parable. We're, we're right in... Uh, from 32 to 33, Matthew 21, 33 through um, 45. So first let's remember, ooh, am I popping here a little bit? I mean, I'm supposed to be popping and you know, the flame's supposed to help me get warmed up, right? And by the way, my grandkids call me Poppy, so maybe that's part of it, I don't know. Um, we're in, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Right? And this is the last week of his life. So it's the time of the Passover. He's nearing his end of the journey to the cross. And the tension has been growing a lot. And if you thought the parable of the two sons last week was kind of confrontive and maybe tense, um, the parable of the wicked tenants really takes the gloves off. Okay, let's start reading this thing. Um, yeah, there it is. Okay. You guys probably already read it twice while I was talking. <laughs> Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the, by the way, this is Jesus 
you know, is telling this primarily to the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees respond, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it will fall will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Well, there's, there's your encouragement for the morning, huh? So, first of all, note that we're back in the vineyard. Scott mentioned that last week. And um, the Israel is the vineyard of God. And then we have this sort of odd little thing where the, the owner sets this stuff up and then just kind of disappears. That's, that seems a little odd to me. You know, you would want to keep an eye on things, but apparently not. Um, lastly, note that the slaves that are re referred to are the prophets that God has sent to Israel. So there's this thing about parables that sometimes you can kind of match stuff up one to one. Um, so we did, just did that, but that's just a little piece and don't get carried away with that. Also, note that uh, this is just a little bit crazy. If the tenants are the people in general, and the Pharisees in particular, and they've mistreated and murdered the prophets, what possesses the owner, who is God, to think that it's going to be better to send his son? So, you know, high contrast. What's really going on here? It's equally crazy to think that the tenants are somehow... Man, I'm just really all over this thing, aren't I? Um, it, the, the tenants think they're literally going to get away with murder. You know, it's like, well... Let's just kill everybody and get rid of them. And so nobody's going to notice. And yet the arc of the story so far, not just the parable, but literally from Genesis to Jesus, basically demands that there is death involved. And of course, we're coming to that at the cross. So Jesus asks a very pointed question. What will the owner do? So... Verse 41, Jesus has confronted them and called out their stewardship of God's law and God's people. So, uh, did you guys catch what they said about themselves? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Well, that's their self-evaluation of their own work. That's kind of amazing. It's, it fits the law. It fits the cultural expectations. It makes sense. In fact, everyone listening to the parable originally would just kind of turn to each other and nod and say, well, yeah, that's the only way we can make things right. Jesus doesn't have to say it. They said it about themselves. So as, as you work into thinking about personal application stuff, you know, it's like, if you're a Pharisee, how you doing? Okay, you are out there, right? All right, just checking, just checking. Well, what does Jesus do when they give themselves that self-evaluation and to say that right out loud? Does he say, 
you guys are finally starting to wake up and smell the coffee. No, no. He quotes Psalm 118. It's a psalm of God's victory, and he's talking about the chief cornerstone. Well, what do you do with that? Also, I want to point out at the very end, isn't it ironic that the people seem to know that Jesus is a prophet, but the Pharisees actually are just afraid of him? All right. Now let's get into kind of the meat of stuff a bit. Most often, Jesus tells a parable in response to a question. So, the question. What is the question? And I say, I, I don't have a good way to just kind of... You're supposed to read my mind. <laughs> So the question is actually in verse 23, when the chief priests and the elders, and these are you know, all those guys who are in charge, they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus turns the question back on them and says, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, the baptism of John, was it from God or someplace else? And they huddle and they get together and they realize we really have no idea and they just have to admit it. So our, follow, our, our parable follows up on that question. What is this authority you have? Where does it come from? So the first thing we want to be clear about is the difference in Jesus' authority. As humans, we have a strong tendency to measure authority by other categories. Sometimes it's the pedigree of our education and even where we got it. So in a given context, your PhD from Harvard might be considered better than my PhD from East Elephant's Breath, Indiana. You guys never been there, huh? Okay. Lovely town. The contrast gives rise to a different kind of comparison. I really want you to get this. This is an important point. Write this down. You, everybody knows what a BS is, degree, right? An MS is more of the same, and PhD is piled higher and deeper. So you guys are educated. Awesome. <laughs> nice. We sometimes use other measures too. It's, it could be our personal pedigree, like the family tree, or it's our resume showing others are ingenuity, creativity, leadership, entrepreneurial spirit, or anything we deem as valuable for a basis of that kind of comparison and authority. It can also be vested by a higher authority in the case of the military, law enforcement, and even, or perhaps especially this morning, the church. My point is, we generally have to turn someplace else as our appeal to authority. So it's a pretty good question that the Pharisees are asking. But it doesn't work that way with Jesus. Okay, well, not precisely so. He, he does appeal to author, the authority of God, but that's a Trinitarian kind of a, a, a bit that we're just not going to deal with because we don't have time this morning. So you'll recall that the people, as Scripture records, the people love to hear Jesus compared to the Pharisees. Remember why? Because he teaches as one with authority not like the scribes and Pharisees. People loved listening to him. I mean, how many people flocked to the Sermon on the Mount? And when he had to feed 5,000, that's a pretty big group. This is just, they didn't come out for the food, they came out for him originally. Then they got the food. So he taught as one with authority, not like them. Well, that's kind of an ouch for them. See, the Pharisees were rehearsing the law and appealing to a whole list of rabbis as their authority. 
On the other hand, while that's kind of tiresome, and maybe that's a setup for Jesus being a little more popular, Jesus sounded different because of this vital distinction as the author of Scripture. He was telling people what it means to experience the love of God firsthand. So, do, do you, how many of you experience God's love directly by hearing um, just books? Or, I even have to admit it, speakers? One! God bless you, brother. Yeah, the rest of you are thinking about it. That's good. But Jesus is saying, no, I am of the Father, and I know what the love is like directly, and let me tell you it. And so then all the stories we have in Scripture. So the people loved to hear Jesus because he was sharing his own personal knowledge and experience of God. The Pharisees couldn't hold a candle to that. Ooh, candle. Nice. For the simple reason that they really didn't have much of that experience of God, especially compared to Jesus. So it's really no wonder that Jesus ticked them off, and by the same token, they kind of ticked Jesus off. They're at odds. Well, to help us get further into this kind of dynamic with the Pharisees, let me tell you about my older brother. His name is Steve. And um, I want to be clear, I'm not casting him as the Pharisee, and I'm certainly not casting me as Jesus when I'm talking about this. And I also, uh, if you think you're going to hear some juicy family stories, I'm not going there either, because that, that's a field day for therapy, and we don't have time. I just want to relate a little bit about him that... He's seven years older than I am, and so I grew up from a kind of naive perspective, you know, as a little kid watching him. I can say that for an elder brother, he treated me pretty well, which really meant that he mostly ignored me, and that was okay. But he kind of seemed to understand when I was doing little kid things, so, you know, I have that going for me. But I, sadly, I watched my brother develop a pattern of seeing himself as a victim. It's so, so much easier to write these things than to say these things. But what I want you to know about Steve is that he's a decent guy who gradually and I would say sadly categorically resisted a path of personal responsibility. For him everything was always going wrong and it was because somebody else had it in for him. It was somebody else's fault. And over the decades that became such an entrenched pattern that he began to do what we call preemptive strikes where he would you know it's kind of like when a guy and a gal are going out and the the, the gal says I'm done with you because she thinks that he's gonna dump her preemptive strike and so my brother would say and do these crazy things and blame us for the crazy things he was talking about so that he could push his friends and family away. That's a different side of what I'm saying. Look at the Pharisees and look at what Jesus is looking at when he looks at the Pharisees. He sees guys who mean well. They're decent. They take things seriously. But if anything goes wrong, it's always somebody else's fault. They didn't really, the Pharisees didn't think much of the regular people. They're the problem with Israel. See how that works a little bit? 
Well, you may or may not have uh, someone like my brother Steve in your life, but I, I'm trying to share that as a way to get into this parable. And specifically, I want you to see the struggle that the Pharisees had to believe anything good about Jesus. The lead into the parable is that question about his authority, mostly because from their perspective, he truly did not possess any. He just didn't fit. They, they understood that he was somehow speaking for God, and they caught that the people certainly regarded Jesus as a prophet, but that just makes it harder. The Pharisees couldn't understand how Jesus was not wrapped up in the same things that they were. That, they didn't, that he didn't think and act the way that they thought he should. So it really follows that they couldn't get a hold of the content, what I'm calling authority. So out of the Pharisee question that Jesus' parable answer, I want you to see something that's probably easy to... Oh, I dropped one item, sorry. The word for authority, and so it, is it up there? Exousia, did you guys see that? I, I bumped right over that. I got carried away. It literally means out of being. So it's not about books and pedigree and family history and family tree, what you know by things that have been given to you that way. It's who you are in your heart. The real you is your authority. And in terms of how we are as Christians in our Christian walk, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you have the authority of Christ in you because the being of Christ is in you. All right, so hang on to that exousia thing. But let's keep moving on. I want to ask you this question. How do you think Jesus feels about the Pharisees? Now, it's, it's not a typical question. It's not one that we spend a lot of time on. But given what I'm describing about their relationship and the tension, and Jesus looks at them and sees brothers. But what are his feelings? And I want you to just shout out some feeling words. Tell me, tell me what you think Jesus is feeling. Say it again. Frustrated. Frustrated. Another one? Sad. Sad, absolutely. Yep. Angry. Angry. Mm-hmm. Disappointment, right? And see, you know, all of these things that we can come up with are in there, and I think they can actually go both ways because I think they were having the same feelings towards him. Right. Compassion. Compassion. Yep, that's coming. You bet, especially as he goes to the cross. So think for a minute about the struggle and tension Jesus faced every time he spoke with the religious leaders. Always a contest. Always trying, they're always trying to trip him up. Always applying categories that don't come anywhere close to fitting who Jesus really is. Like pretty much everyone else, including the disciples, they want Jesus to be something, and actually someone, that he's not. And he can never be. And they keep forcing the issue and he just, Jesus just forces it right back. Well, so basically the Pharisees kind of never get it. 
Jesus can always turn their categories upside down and so they accuse him of hanging out with the wrong sorts and he reminds them of what the love of God really looks like. They ask him questions and he asks them questions that they can't answer. They try to cow and contain him and he reminds them what faithless tenants look like. So try this word on for size about the tone and that's the feeling word part. The tone is anguish. Jesus is in anguish. Synonyms for anguish. Agony, pain, torment, torture, suffering, distress, angst, misery, sorrow, grief, heartache, desolation, despair. Yeah, Jesus is frustrated and disappointed and certainly angry because they just don't get it. But he's in anguish because of where that leads. By their own words, the vineyard owner, quote, will put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is God reaching out and they keep slapping him away. And he's in anguish because that's where it leads. You see, Jesus knows he's at the end of his journey. He, he knows he doesn't have very many chances left to persuade people, especially the Pharisees, that love and grace really do conquer all. The Pharisees are stuck on a path of personal effort. They are paralyzed by perfection. They know they can't reach on their own. They're slaves to their own will and refuse to bend the knee to the Lord of the universe. But just like all previous generations, God still loves them and doesn't want to give them up. It's killing Jesus that he can't get through to them. Anguish is God's cry of desperation to save them from themselves. Okay, now let's take what may feel like an abrupt turn from anguish and we'll come full circle in a minute, but in order to work our way into what I'm calling the difficult topic or the hard topic, I'm going to give you some binary choices and you give a shout out for your choice. Okay? Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Love it. Plain or peanut? Yeah. Wow. Okay, here's a good one. Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs. I won't ask you to show. All right. <laughs> Here's one from, uh, you know, the past commercials. Less filling, tastes great. Okay, so you guys don't drink beer, never mind. All right. So the beer keeps coming back, yeah. I don't know. Tastes great, okay. Well, okay. Now, none of those kind of choices are, you know, life-altering choices, but they make this point. You get to decide. You get to decide. And you truly are making decisions all day long, every day, thousands of decisions. Some are simple, some are not. Many are simple reflex, but some are anguishing. The bottom line about choices and decisions according to scripture is this difficult topic called judgment. The word judgment is a perfectly good word and a genuinely worthy topic, but it gets a kind of a bum rap in common usage. It's all over the comic lexicon. I mean, how many times have you seen something or heard something to which the response is, I don't judge. 
Well, Christians have become part of the problem about why this word has such a hard element to it. Because what gets attached to us is not just the word judgment, but what? Judgmental. Right? So we have to own that sometimes we at least come across as judgmental to the rest of the world. The word judgment literally means this. The ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. That's, that's the essence of the meaning. The ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. Jesus in our parable is in anguish because the Pharisees keep making the same decision or the same judgment about Jesus. They judge him as the wrong answer to their dilemma. They judge him as wrong-headed because from their perspective he twists the scripture that they love so much. They judge him as wrong-hearted because he loves everyone, especially the wrong people with an embarrassingly lavish affection and they judge his behavior as wrong because it generates the same kind of lavish responses. So one thing for you to ponder in your own life, maybe in small groups, is how do you think other people judge you? How do you think other people judge you? But Jesus is in anguish because the Pharisees can't get over themselves. They can't or won't accept his message of love and grace. He's in anguish because they hold on so tight to their truth and it's walling them off from God. They've closed their hearts to him and they have, as we've seen at the end of the parable, condemned themselves. So there's the trap. Judgment can turn into self-condemnation. Remember that judgment effectively is really just telling it like it is. Not judgmental, just judgment. This is what it looks like, guys. We make decisions all day long that hopefully lead us to sensible conclusions. And this is why we're gathered as men without our wives, so that we don't hear how not sensible our conclusions are. Anybody ever run into that at home? Thank you, Mark. If we follow the path of the Pharisees, we end up in a dark and difficult place. And bluntly, we'll end up at odds with Jesus. So it's really a very hard thing to think that what we believe, that what we say, that what we do may cause Jesus anguish. Our lives might cause Jesus anguish. It happens. So, how many of you here want to avoid the trap of judgment leading to self-condemnation? And the rest of you are going to warm up slower. Okay. Well, good. I'm going to give you the way to avoid that problem. Okay, ready? Now look again at the parable of Matthew 21:42. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. There's really nothing for you to do 
That was the Pharisees' problem. They kept trying to do all these things. And here's Jesus' answer. The cornerstone. So let me sum up. From the parable we see, the Pharisees, as so often, question Jesus' authority, right? Jesus tells a parable about the normal human response to God, which includes all that bad stuff that the tenants do. Jesus asks a question that points up how judgment becomes self-condemnation, and then he quotes Psalm 18. So, there you go. You wrote all that down. You ready to go out the door? Maybe. Let me, let's reboot this in terms that we're more likely to use. Jesus, where do you get off telling us this stuff? Well, boys, if you really want to be like me, let go and let God. Your rules are all about you anyway. So how's that working out? And how do you think that's going to end? Instead, if you want genuine spiritual leverage in your life, all you have to do is believe me. That's it. Believe me. It's not about what you do. It's about who you believe. Your effort by itself will not get you anywhere except to self-condemnation. Your faith in Christ brings you to freedom in Christ. So, that's pretty amazing. Just like Jesus said, it's amazing that all you have to do is believe. So as you go out of here, remember that. It's not about who you are or what you do. It's all about who he is and what he does through you and in you. So, make your daily choices based on faith. Then, you'll get to know the authority of Christ in your life. Let me pray for it. Father, you are truly an amazing God to have set up a way for us to live in Christ. And all we have to do is believe in him. So, Father, as we go to our small groups this morning, help us hear your heart's cry for us to love you more and become more like you through faith in Jesus, who you sent to die for us. Thank you for this gift of faith in Christ's name. Amen.